How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. It was great. It was great, especially given, you know, all that's happening and the fact that you can hear that all the way up in New Hampshire is remarkable. Uh -huh. Remote. It's a wonderful thing. It's the new age, buddy. It is. How's your week been? It's been great. It's been amazing. I'm uh, here in the Zoom room up at the LinkedIn work share location. It's uh, it's quite nice, quite convenient. Nice. Is that in Lincoln? Yeah. It's yeah. so clever. Really nice pun. LinkedIn. Mm. LinkedIn. Nice. Good. All right. Well, we're we the best we can. I'm glad. I'm glad. And there's a lot, lot to pay attention to today. But first, Tom, who's our guest tonight? We have a distinguished professor and vice chair for research in the departments of psychiatry and neuroscience at SUNY Upstate Medical University in New York. He is also senior scientific advisor to the research program in pediatric psychopharmacology at the Massachusetts General Hospital and a lecturer at Harvard Medical School. He is program director for the educational websites ADHDinadults.com and ADHDevidence.org. He is president of the World Federation for ADHD. He has been ranked as a highly cited researcher in the top 0.01% of scientists across all fields. He is a recipient of numerous awards, including the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society of Psychiatric Genetics and the Paul Hulk Award from the American Psychopathological Association. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show, Dr. Stephen Farone. Yeah. Welcome, Dr. Farone. It is an honor to have you here today. Happy to be here, Joe. That is uh, a remarkable resume, um, and it only took you, what, 20, 20 days to collect that, right? <laughs> so how long have you been doing this, Steve? I've been doing it, well, gosh, over three decades now. I mean, it's been a, a, a passion for me for quite a long time, getting involved in uh, ADHD and child psychiatry more broadly. Yeah, and, and just so people know, our paths crossed briefly between 93 and 95 when I was doing my fellowship there at MGH McLean. And at that point, ADHD was, was just really beginning to, to hit the literature. What was going on then? Well, what happened was that we realized in the early, maybe late 80s, early 1990s, that some of the beliefs about ADHD were just wrong. I mean, the biggest one was that ADHD disappeared in adulthood. That was a common belief. In fact, it was, I had to have a friend who tried to uh, get a prescription for an ADHD medication was and he saved it and we, this is around the early 1990s and it came back from the insurance company said the disorder is not valid after the age of 18. Wow. <laughs> so he wow. couldn't even get a prescription for his ADHD medication as if a switch had turned off in the brain that said at 18 you can no longer express the symptoms of the disorder. Huh. Um, totally ridiculous but it was it was strongly believed. Um, partly because there was a time in psychiatry where there were a group of a group of psychiatrists and psychologists, I should say, who base their ideas and theories on their own clinical experience, not on what I call hard evidence from scientific research. And although clinical observations can frequently be useful and frequently lead to important discoveries, sometimes they lead us astray. And that's what happened with ADHD in the early in the in the 1980s. There were too many mistaken beliefs about the disorder that needed to be corrected. And that's why uh, me and my colleagues at MGH jumped into really focusing on research into the disorder. Yeah, and, and that was really groundbreaking and so important. Um, I remember being trained by, by Joe Biederman and Tim Willens and others, uh, just how to begin assessing this. Why do you think we had so many erroneous views of it before? Well, partly, that's a good, really good question. Partly, when a disorder is, was first, if you will, discovered. I mean, we, we knew that ADHD, by the way, for your listeners, if you go through the history of the, of the disorder, it was first, the symptoms of the disorder first appeared in a medical textbook back in 1775. 
Wow. Uh, this, was a, this was a Scottish medical text. Soon after that, it appeared in a German medical textbook as well. Um, now, they didn't call it ADHD, of course, but when you look at the description, it, these are clearly children with the disorder. So I like to lead with that so people understand that ADHD is not some recent invention of American psychiatry, which the stigmatizers say it is. They say, oh, you just invented this disorder so you could drug kids, blah, 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 and a lot of subsequent stupidity. Uh, it's been around for quite a long time. First appeared in a medical journal in, I think it was 1901, Dr. George Still in, in, uh, in Britain published a paper about an ADHD-like disorder. But fast forward to the 60s um, when the, I guess it was the DSM-2, the diagnostic, the second edition of the Diagnostic Manual of Psychiatry recognized hyperkinetic disorder, which, they, which eventually became ADHD. They saw it as a kind of a very narrow disorder of uh, hyperactivity and inattention. And it was back in a time when psychiatry focused on differential diagnosis. Was it this disorder or that disorder? Did the child have ADHD or could they have something else? So, so just so people understand, differential diagnosis is that there could be different diagnoses, different explanations for this cluster of symptoms that we're seeing. Is that fair? That's, that's exactly the way we were taught. I was taught to think that way in yeah. the 1980s. And it, it is a useful way to think. You do want to get the correct explanation for the symptoms. But what it did is what it made people ignore the possibility that somebody could have two disorders. Mm. And back in the 1990s, we were discovering in our clinics that kids with ADHD didn't simply have ADHD. They frequently had other conditions such as depression, anxiety, to name two big ones. Uh, believe it or not, when we, we would publish these data, present them at national conferences, we would, it was not unusual for somebody to get up in the audience and literally yell at us and say, this is ridiculous. I have never seen this in my, in my clinic. Um, you're, there must be something wrong with the waters in Boston. <laughs> Literally, it's things like that were, were, were shouted at me and Dr. Biederman. Uh, nowadays, what we discovered in the early 1990s is accepted as, as correct. Uh, no one in their right mind would argue that a child with ADHD or an adult with ADHD could have multiple conditions that require treatment. Again, it's one example of a misunderstanding that had occurred um, based upon clinical views that just were, were wrong in the 1960s and 1970s. It's interesting. And it's, as you're right, it's still so stigmatized and vilified today. And, and we're, we're finding um, during this COVID era, how many adults are actually coming in saying that they're having difficulty with attention and concentrating and how many of them are sort of discarded saying, well, you're just, you're just looking for medicines. What, what's going on with that? Well, we do know that, that, that COVID and the, the restrictions that applied during the pandemic took a very large toll on people's mental health across the board, not just ADHD, across the board. Uh, rates of mental health disorders arose. People had less access to treatment. I'm working on a paper now with colleagues showing that um, there was less medication treatment for ADHD during the pandemic partly because of access was, was restricted due to uh, restrictions, healthcare restrictions and so forth. And so what we see now is, it, it's really a good example of a, a, when people try to, when I try to, when I explain, try to explain ADHD to people, they say, well, isn't it just people who are you know, not trying hard enough or people who are just in difficult situations? I say to them, well, number one, let's forget about not trying and, not, and being lazy. You're saying that because you don't, understand it from your perspective. You're someone who is well-organized in your life and can do it. ADHD is an interaction between the internal resources we have to attend to and to organize our, our environment and our behavior and the environmental stresses that are placed upon our internal resources. And if our internal resources are very weak, inattention, hyperactivity emerge. If the environmental stresses are very strong, we can also see an emergence of those types of behaviors in someone whose uh, internal resources are, are only moderately weak. So it's that interaction that makes us see uh, the emergence of symptoms sometimes during times of difficulty like the pandemic. So are you saying that, that some of these adults may have had attention deficit all along, but it just didn't manifest because- that's, that, that, that's, that's correct. The idea that there's, when recently in the professional literature, um, a few papers published about uh, so-called adult onset ADHD, which were, in my view, totally ridiculous. And, and actually with Joe Biederman, we published a, 
an editorial in JAMA Psychiatry outlining why it's, it was a ridiculous idea. Uh, it's not ridiculous to think that adults will, in adulthood, maybe the first time they're diagnosed with the disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's because early on in life, they have had a sufficient, we call it social, emotional, and intellectual scaffolding to hold them up and to protect them against their ADHD. And it's only until later in life when the stress has become too much and the scaffolding goes away that their symptoms emerge. Um, that's difficult to assess, but a, a competent clinician can figure that out. And how would a competent clinician assess that? Because that's, that's one of the big difficulties that we're having right now. Like I said, people think that these adults are coming in drug seeking, looking for medicines that they don't really need, which yes. is as stigmatizing as it could be. And the drug seeking, let's, let's talk about that for a second, because the drug seeking issue is an important issue. Um, I've published a paper on what we call the, the misuse and abuse of medications for ADHD a few years ago. And there's no question that particularly in, in adolescence and young adulthood uh, and on college campuses where it's an, an, an issue that uh, many, when I say many, we're talking about on, in terms of a lifetime use, up to 10, 15% of young adults will say that they have misused medication for ADHD. So it is a problem that, that everybody needs to be aware of. Parents need to be aware of it to protect their kids' medications. Patients need to be aware of it to, to protect their medications from their friends and not divert it. Uh, and clinicians need to educate their patients about how to avoid that kind of diversion. Now that said, it's unfair to, to say that a patient coming in is just a drug seeker. A clinician has to be concerned about that. And one way to, you know, the way, one way to assess that, clearly if somebody is coming in and asking a doctor for, I need to have uh, immediate release Adderall for my ADHD. Um, then all the warning signs come off because this person's asking for the, for the most, uh, most misusable type of form, for, form of medication. If a clinician offers a non-stimulant and the patient says, oh no, I don't want a non-stimulant, I heard they're no good. Um, then you might worry because non-stimulants are less misusable than, than, than stimulants. So there are ways for clinicians to, to figure this out. Um, and the other way, of course, is to understand that and this is something which is not so clear, especially in primary care, that you're not simply going down a checklist of, do you have enough symptoms to meet the diagnosis? You're also finding out what is wrong in the patient's life that is requiring them to need treatment because having symptoms is not enough to meet it to be diagnosable. You need to have some kind of distress or disability in your life. And that is something that can be eked out by a careful interview. So what do we look for? For, for the adult? Well, one of the key things to, to know about adults' ADHD is that there is an age-dependent decline in symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity. So that by adulthood, the typical adult is more, in more, more primarily inattentive and less hyperactive and impulsive than a child is. So for example, an ADHD child might be running around the house and climbing on furniture and things of that sort. You don't find adults climbing on furniture and running around the house. Um, their um, hyperactivity. Their, their prefrontal cortex is, is developing more as adults? So uh, Dr. Joe, you've got it exactly right, that there is, with, with development, the brain, we now know that the brain continues to develop almost to the age of 30. And the last parts of the brain to develop are the, is the prefrontal cortex, and that's the part of the brain that enables us to self-regulate our behavior, our emotions, our abilities to attend, our, our, cogni our, our cognition. And so, as we age, our self-regulatory abilities get better. And in fact, some kids will remit their ADHD completely. So by adulthood, about roughly a third of kids will grow out of their ADHD, uh, but two thirds won't grow, have grown out of their ADHD. And those are the ones we worry about as having ADHD in adulthood. Hmm. I remember talking with some friends about the limbic system, which is all about impulsivity versus the prefrontal cortex and saying, how many times have you done something limbically and slapped your forehead like, oh my gosh, as if you're trying to jumpstart your prefrontal cortex. So people need to understand these parts of the brain are real. And what this means is this is not about your morality, it's about your mortality. It's just the way the brain is developing. So- right. Well, Joe, you know, you mentioned the limbic system, which controls the, uh, it helps us regulate our emotions. And it's another area about, which is misunderstood about adult ADHD is that Adults with ADHD tend to show a lot of inabilities to self-regulate their emotions. They can be hot-tempered, quick to respond, 
Uh, road rage would be a classic example of that kind of inability to self-regulate our emotions. But what happened in the diagnostic, uh, the development of the diagnosis is that it focused on ability to self-regulate behavior and cognition, i.e. attention, but it ignored our abilities to self-regulate emotions. Even up until now, to the DSM-5, where some of us have published papers about the inability of adults with ADHD to self-regulate emotions, still the diagnostic manual kind of refuses to include those symptoms. And that makes it harder to diagnose adults because sometimes the expression of their ADHD is coming out in emotions and not in attention or hyperactivity or impulsivity. And that is so important to distinguish because some of those folks then will be diagnosed with bipolar or, or some other condition and get completely the wrong medicines. That, that's, ex that's, ex that's exactly right. And we see that as particularly a problem in primary care where some primary care physicians never diagnose ADHD in adults. And which is of course ridiculous because we know that the prevalence in the population is about 5%. So they're, they're there. Uh, and I typically tell them, hey, if you don't think you have ADHD in your clinic, why don't you just examine all of your treatment non-responsive people with depression or bipolar disorder? Take a look, close look at them and I can guarantee you some of them will meet criteria for ADHD. What, what's the hesitation and the, and the stigma around it? What, what, why was it so slow for folks to adopt it? Why are still folks resistant? Great question. Great question, uh, Mark. There has been a stigma attached to ADHD medications for quite a long time because the first medications for ADHD were the stimulant medications, methylphenidate and amphetamine, and those were potentially addictive. And there, there were a lot of animal studies, primarily rat and mouse studies done in the 60s and the 70s that said these drugs were highly addictive, you shouldn't be giving them to children, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and we can't go into the technical reasons why those studies were wrong, but they were subsequently proved wrong. And subsequently, in fact, many groups, including our own, have shown that treatment with these medications actually reduces the risk for addictions subsequently in life, as opposed to in increases the risk for addictions. So because they had this, they, and they, they are scheduled drugs, meaning they're controlled by the FDA and the DEA. So when doctors prescribe them, they have to follow certain regulations that are can be burdensome in terms of the um, mechanics of prescribing them. And so for, the, for that reason, um, the medications were stigmatized, the disorder became stigmatized, and uh, physicians were also not trained. So if most medical schools, for example, provide very little training with ADHD, either at, at the medical school level or at the residency level in, in primary care. Interesting. So there are a couple of things about that. Um, it's, it's very important, I think, for our listeners to recognize that a kid who has attention deficit, who is treated with the correct medication, actually does better and is perhaps less likely to become involved in substance use. Is that fair to say? It's absolutely fair to say. The medications have been studied since the 1960s. Uh, they are safe and effective. When you look at, and we're talking... When you look at the what we call randomized clinical trials, the best types of drug trial you can have, and you measure the effect of ADHD in a standardized way, the effect of these medications is actually one of the strongest effects we have in all of medicine, not just in psychiatry, in all of medicine. Most people, if someone who takes, for example, Lipidor for their cholesterol, it works. It doesn't work as well as a stimulant medication works for, for ADHD. So number one, the best level of evidence shows that they're effective. Number two, when we look at naturalistic data over long periods of time by mining medical records or looking at long-term follow-up studies, we find these medications reduce risks for outcomes like substance abuse, criminal criminality, um, educational underachievement, bone fractures, sexually transmitted diseases, depression, many, many other conditions are reduced because the patient's ADHD has come under control. And this has been shown fairly dramatically. For example, there are some studies coming out of Sweden where they can bracket time periods when adults were on medication and off medication. So when the same person is on, medic is on medication, their risk for criminality, traffic accidents is much lower than when they're off medication. And this is the same person we're, we're comparing at different periods of time. Remarkable data. Um, the, the efficacy and effectiveness of these medications have been shown uh, quite convincingly. So 
part of it certainly is being able to manage the, the impulsivity. But one of the things that, you know, one, one of the things I work with is, is substance abuse kids. Um, and we know that one of the great risk factors for first time substance use is low self-esteem. And there, you know, I wonder, is there a connection between this, that the kids who are appropriately treated, do better in school, achieve what they need to achieve, have enhanced self-esteem as a result, and are therefore less likely to perhaps venture into drugs and alcohol. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what we call the protective effect of these medications. You're, you're, you think about this, a child at the age of five begins to show symptoms of ADHD. Parent has two pathways to choose. They can choose treatment or not treatment. If they choose the treatment pathway, there's a good chance that outcomes will be pretty good. If they choose the non-treatment pathway, the child begins to fail school. They begin to have difficulties with their friends. Their self-esteem goes right down to the toilet, just as you're suggesting. Um, they start. They begin to associate with other kids who are also displaying bad behaviors, difficult behaviors, mental health disorders. Uh, they get involved in a group that's perhaps involved in antisocial behavior. And we can see where that goes. And in fact, antisocial behavior in childhood is a big problem with ADHD, especially untreated. And as a result, if you look at studies that look at the prevalence of ADHD in prison populations, it's around 25%. Hmm. I mean, that's huge. Population prevalence is around five, 6%. And so our society is has been treating ADHD in the criminal justice system as opposed to the healthcare system for decades. And we're trying to change that. Me and many other people are trying to change that by educating the world about uh, ADHD, which I will give a shout out for ADHDevidence.org, where I provide curated evidence about the disorder for anybody to freely look at, to freely download educational materials that they wish to use. Dr. could you give us that website again? We'll, we'll certainly post it on our- It's ADHDevidence.org. ADHDevidence.org. It's so important because, um, again, it's such a misunderstood condition, even though it's been studied at least in, in child psychiatry for what, looking at now three decades? Absolutely, absolutely. So interesting. You know, another area where it's misunderstood has to do with people, particularly adults, who are high achievers. It also could be a high achieving kid in school who's getting mostly straight A's, but a few B's. Uh, but there are, I like to say that ADHD does not discriminate against level of intelligence or level of, level of achievement. People with ADHD can be mentally, can be intellectually disabled. People with ADHD can be gifted and highly intelligent. What we've shown, now colleagues will argue, well, you can't have ADHD if you're, if you're a successful physician or a successful uh, lawyer, you've reached a high level of achievement because ADHD would interfere with that. Well, what we and others have shown in, in research studies is that if you, one example would be this, if you take, you compare, um, take a group of kids that all got straight A's in high school, then you compare those with and without ADHD later in life. Those with, with, with ADHD are not doing as well later in life. They're more impaired. They've had more employment. They've had more, more life difficulties. They're making less money on average than the kids later on in life. Uh, we compare people with high IQ who have ADHD and people with high IQ who don't have ADHD, those with high IQ are doing worse in, I'm sorry, those with ADHD and high IQ are doing worse in all domains. And so people shouldn't think just because I'm a high achiever, I couldn't have ADHD. It's, it's certainly possible. You know, we're, we're pretty remarkable species. Is there, you know, there's that whole field of of evolutionary psychiatry and psychology, and you know, is there the potential that there was some selective advantage for a small group of having someone with ADD? I mean, well, as as my friend Joe Biederman has said, if I was on the savanna of Africa back in the early stages of human evolution, and I was face to face with a lion, I would not want to be inattentive. That would not be helping <laughs> me at all. That's a good point. And in fact, and in fact. Uh, fast forward, probably two or three decades after he made that statement, um, I was I participated in a genetic study with colleagues from Barcelona, where they used um, the fact that we have we now have DNA samples from essentially bones that were discovered from the 
Neolithic and Paleolithic periods. So we know what, for example, Neanderthal DNA looked like. We know what the structure of DNA was back in those early times. And obviously we know what our DNA looks like nowadays. And what we showed in a, in a, in a paper we published a few years ago was that if we look at the risk variants, so these are DNA risk variants for ADHD, what's happened with them over time? If they were useful, we should see an increase in those variants over time. If they were not useful, they should start to decrease over time. And what we found is that they decreased over time. There was no evolutionary advantage to having, having the disorder. There's been a, a slow but steady decrease in ADHD risk alleles over time. Yet the prevalence still remains at around 5%. Uh, and that's because with a, a complex disorder such as ADHD, uh, we call it complex because there are many, many, many different genetic risk variants and environmental risk factors that are involved. It's very difficult for those genetic variants to, to be eliminated from the population. And so ADHD is, continues to be with us and will be probably with us for quite a long time. What does that mean that, that it was at a, a higher prevalence, all those millions? It, it means that initially those, when, when, when humans evolved, that our DNA contained, contained variants that predisposed us for being inattentive, hyperactive, and impulsive. But they weren't useful because they weren't useful for survival. They, were, they began to be eliminated from the gene pool. Interesting. I mean, there was one theory that said, you know, it's 5% because uh, back when we were evolving as a, as a group, you know, the groups were maybe 20 people and it paid to have one person who was a scanner sort of looking around going, oh, that could hurt me, that could hurt me. But, but maybe not. Maybe it was just part of who we are as human beings. But that's a really interesting idea that... It, that there, there, there are some interesting data that are just, this is just recent. Um, suggesting that low levels of ADHD symptoms might be useful for increasing some positive aspects of cognition, such as creativity. Hmm. Uh, high levels are not. That when you get to high levels of symptoms, they're disruptive, they make life more difficult, they're not useful for creativity, for anything, for anything beneficial. Um, there is a, uh, I shouldn't call it, called a movement or maybe a meme these days that we call it in the ADHD, in the, in the online ADHD world about the so-called gift of ADHD. There's even a book published about the gift of ADHD. Um, and this is something which is, is, is a mistake. And I am vociferously against people who promote this idea because it really trivializes the disorder, people who have the disorder. Uh, the disorder itself is not a gift. In fact, that's why we call it a disorder because it causes, causes dysfunction and, and disability. Uh, and yet at lower levels of symptoms, at lower levels, symptoms of the disorder, it's possible. And I say possible because the data on this are still very scant. But Joe, this, this leads us to another area of ADHD, which is important for readers, not readers, listeners <laughs> to understand. I'm very old school. I'm saying readers, that's kind of crazy. Um, is that we're becoming to understand that rather than ADHD being a simple binary condition, you either have it or you don't, ADHD is a continuous distribution of a trait. We call it a quantitative trait in the population. You can have a lot of ADHD, a moderate amount of ADHD, a little of ADHD. And it's only when you reach a certain threshold of symptoms and impairment that we say you have a disorder. So, Someone might say, well, that's really weird. I say, well, it's not weird. It's just like hypertension. Everybody has a blood pressure reading, but some people have hypertension that needs to be treated. ADHD is really more like hypertension than it is like having, than having a broken leg. Yes or no, your leg is broken or not. But so there are people who are near, and why is this important? This is important because there are people who are near the threshold of diagnosis and they have some symptoms of ADHD, but not a lot, not enough to be diagnosed. And they may have some troubles in life. And these, 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 these people provide a particular conundrum for clinicians and for the patients, the potential patients themselves, because it's not exactly clear what their situation is. So how do we tease that out? I mean, I, I think part of what COVID has done, what I'd like to think it's done, is normalize mental health and say, you know, it's a spectrum. You know, everybody gets sad, but not everybody gets major depression. You know, 
Everybody gets a little worried. Not everybody has a panic attack and anxiety. Everybody, you know, gets distracted, but not necessarily has that level of attention deficit. Is, is that part of what's emerging now, do you think, in, in our world? Is that going to help destigmatize? I really hope so. I really hope so. The more we educate the public about mental disorders, the more we will reduce stigma. Uh, the more people realize that it's it's not these are not some unusual people that are shut away in a closet somewhere. These are people in your family. These are people that you deal with in your every, everyday life because mental disorders are very common. ADHD five percent, depression around ten percent, just to give two simple two simple examples. The disorders affect people in their everyday life. Well, we we get back to the question of when. Does somebody have a subthreshold disorder? Or when does somebody have a real disorder? When is someone just sad? When are they depressed? And this is why we have diagnostic criteria. Uh, now the, our diagnostic criteria, by the way, are vilified in, in the media frequently. They're stigmatized. Oh, you don't know how to diagnose anything. They're all subjective. You're not going to do a CAT scan. You're not doing a brain scan. You're not taking a blood sample. How can we trust you, Dr. Joe, that you know what you're saying? It's just, it's just your opinion. That's ridiculous. Well, that argument's absurd. We hear it frequently, but it's absurd. And I like to tell people that an objective test is one that is reproducible. And that's what's really important. It's not important that it's done by a machine. It's important that it's reproduci reproducible by a trained clinician. And in fact, let's take a very common objective test, blood pressure. It's one of the most notoriously unreproducible measures that we have in medicine. You take someone's blood pressure, it can vary over the course of a few minutes or a few hours fairly dramatically if it's not done by a well-trained technician. And here's where the training becomes important. And well-trained people can diagnose ADHD, depression, anxiety in a manner that's reproducible that people agree with. This has been shown now for many decades. So I think that the public should have great confidence in our ability to separate out those people who have mild levels of symptoms those people who need treatment because of the symptoms they have. Can I can I get a little bit controversial or please please yes? Do you think that we in our field of mental health may be contributing to stigma by using the word disorder? Does that separate people into two groups? One group is okay, and one group well, I don't know whether we can trust them. What do you think? Well, you know, you're bringing up uh, an issue that's related to the so-called neurodiversity movement you may be familiar with, the concept that there is diversity in human nature, and some people have diverse brains that are just a little bit different, and they shouldn't be categorized differently. We can talk more about that later if you'd like. Yeah. The problem with that approach is if you say that this is not a disorder, we begin to take it out of healthcare. Uh, we begin to take it away from, for example, our insurance company is going to reimburse us for treating someone who just has a trait in the population? Probably mm -hmm. not. Insurance companies reimburse disorders. Uh, any healthcare professional needs to have a diagnosis to make decide who gets treated and who doesn't. It's just a practicality of life. We can't, you know, we need to, you know, someone has to say, is this person's blood pressure high enough or not to, to, to diagnose them? And so, my view of it is that we, should, we continue to use the word disorder because it truly is a healthcare issue. I don't want to take it out of the healthcare uh, arena. Right, and that is such an important part of it that we are in some ways using language because the insurance company wants us to. I mean, these are, these are absolutely conditions. There's no question that it's, it's on that spectrum of, you know, like I said, Everybody gets sad, not everyone gets suppressed. So there's a spectrum of it. Um, but I, I think that we have an opportunity here, especially because of post-COVID, to normalize mental health. And that doesn't mean that attention deficit isn't real. It's real, it impacts people. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a profound impact when it is disregarded. Uh, and I think but one of the things I think of when I think of normalizing mental health is making people view mental disorders the same way they view any other medical condition. So somebody has hypertension, 
you don't blame them for it. You don't say that they're lazy. You don't say that they could try harder. Um, but many people still with mental disorders, they view it as a, not as a disability. They view it, they, they view it as some inability of the, per, of the person to have, to control themselves to, uh, and something that they're not trying hard enough. And that's just, it's absurd. It's really yeah. absurd. It's blaming, blaming the victim essentially is what we do as a society for mental disorders. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, again, in, in my substance use world, you know, explaining to kids what's happening in their brain. That's why we can say addiction is not about morality, it's about mortality. It is just the way the brain works and we can move away from this. And yet we still are faced with this. So how, how do we address it? Um, is there, because it's all about taking the data and saying, okay, this kid would really be a benefit from a medication but there's still that stigma attached to it. What do we do? How do we manage that? Honestly, Joe, it's, it's extremely difficult. I, in my own life, I've done what I can to try to educate parents about the disorder uh, so that they would treat their uh, children, even some personal experiences where somebody, you know, I can think of a, a kid I observed at the bus stop when my kids were going to, you know, were going to, were going to school. And there was one kid who clearly had ADHD. And I, I just observed quietly for a bit. When, and when I realized it was a problem and that the parents started to complain to me about issues, I said, I just said to them, you know, maybe you should have your pediatrician take a look and see if they have a problem that can be treated. This person was totally against it. Now, fast forward 20 years later, um, that kid ended up in jail. Um, and they ended up in jail, they ended up using substances. They took kind of an antisocial ADHD route that's all too common in untreated cases. And I think that the message that parents need to have is that if they're worried about the risks of taking medication, they should balance those against the risks of not treating a disorder. They should ask themselves if their child had was diagnosed with cancer, would they not treat it because they were afraid of the risks of the, med, of, the of, of the treatments, or would they treat it? Um, I think that helps us normalize to try to get people to think about what 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 they would do if this disorder were not a mental health disorder. And typically, they would they would seek treatment for it. Is it typically the the use of drugs that keeps people from wanting to treat it? Like I don't want to get my kid addicted to pharmaceuticals, big pharma. They're out there to Yes, that's frequent. That's frequently the case that the parent is against the idea of treating a child, typically because of something they've read, seen on the internet, heard on TV. Even you know reputable sources such as the New York Times will publish have published articles that are very negative about ADHD and, and its treatment, uh, claiming that the treatments are some you know big cabal between psychiatry and the pharmaceutical industry. Um, so yes, parents are afraid of these treatments. And they think that, well, I can just delay treatment. I can always do it a few years later. Well, that's actually wrong because as Dr. Joe mentioned, a few years later, that patient has accumulated lots of disabilities that lead to low self-esteem and other problems that make life much more difficult. And in fact, when people come later in life for treatment, um, their treatment is not just medication because as we like to say, you know, pills don't replace skills. And if a child has not acquired many life skills because they were untreated for five, 10, 15 years, then once they're appropriately treated, other psychosocial treatments are needed to provide them with those life skills that they never developed. So, so we're really asking parents to use their prefrontal cortex and sort of anticipate. <laughs> that, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Do, do, do we find that um, folks tend to self-medicate if they're not being properly medicated for this condition? Uh, yes. When, when people aren't treated for ADHD, it's it's more likely that they'll use other substances um, to not self-medicate in the sense of uh, they don't typically, for example, we know that amphetamine is, treats ADHD, but uh, people with ADHD don't typically seek out amphetamine to treat their ADHD. They might smoke cigarettes, for example, and uh, nicotine actually has some helpful effects for ADHD symptoms. It's not dramatic, um, but there's some helpful effects of nicotine on ADHD symptoms. That's one one clear example. But also patients might, for example, uh, there's a lot of uh, marijuana smoking among people that have ADHD and that helps them kind of 
helps with their hyperactivity and their impulsivity, kind of helps relax them, brings them down. Um, also might help them sleep because ADHD is associated with sleep disorders. So yes, that's a, it is a big problem, self-medication. What about cocaine? Um, I've had some patients who will tell me that, you know, they're coming with attention deficit symptoms and we talk about cocaine and they say, you know, all my friends were doing this and they're like jumping around and I'm just like, felt so calm. Is that accurate? Is there that similarity between cocaine and, and the medications we use? Well, it's a great question. In fact, cocaine has its primary site of action on a molecule in the brain called the dopamine transporter. Yep. And the dopamine transporter is also what we call the site of action for methylphenidate and amphetamine. And we believe the reason why they help ADHD. So it's, it's not surprising that you've heard that remark uh, from your your patients. Now, of course, cocaine is not used as a treatment for ADHD because it's highly addictive. And there are other differences between cocaine and the drugs that are used to treat ADHD that make the drugs that treat ADHD much less addictive than cocaine. They don't get, essentially, they don't, they don't get into the brain very quickly. Cocaine gets into the brain super quickly, hits a dopamine transporter, and gives it a high. Whereas that's not true for the oral use of um, stimulant medications. Yeah. Again, it, it's, uh, it's important because we'll have some adults come in and they are immediately dismissed uh, because they were using drugs and alcohol. And as Mark says, you know, self-medication is, is real. I mean, it's... Not it's real. It becomes a conundrum for uh, prescribers because the stimulants are the most effective drugs. And yet if someone has a history of substance abuse, you're kind of a little worried that they might be using this. We talked before about drug seeking. Now, what's been shown is that when you treat substance abusing people with ADHD with stimulant medications, their ADHD improves. It does. It does help them. Uh, but typical devices, you don't. You don't treat their ADHD until their substance abuse is well controlled. You wouldn't. You wouldn't provide AD, medications for ADHD to somebody who is in the middle of raging substance abuse episode or is having serious problems with substance abuse. Yeah. The other thing that, that I've noticed is some kids come in and they look like they have attention deficit because they're so distracted. Um, but I distinguish between a kid who's going distracted, well, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting, or, well, that could hurt me, that could hurt me, that could hurt me, and they're distracted because they're anxious. Give those kids attention deficit medicines we can get the kid really, really in a bad way. So how do we distinguish between those two distractions? So if, if the um, clinician thinks that the child might have an anxiety disorder as opposed to ADHD, uh, they essentially go through this, the criteria for an anxiety disorder. They look for other evidence of anxiety. And what they might find in that case, probably would find in the case that you described is, is here's a child who has a predominance of symptoms of anxiety and it's the symptoms of anxiety that are really affecting them in their life. They have some symptoms that look like ADHD, but um, the anxiety seems to be worse. And the, the, the typical advice that I give clinicians is you always treat the more impairing disorder first. Mm -hmm. So if you think, well, maybe they have both disorders, which is possible, but the anxiety is worse, you deal with the anxiety disorder. And if, if after you treat the anxiety disorder, they no longer seem to have any ADHD symptoms, that's great. But if the ADHD symptoms are still there and are still causing impairments, then you may go on to also treat the symptoms of ADHD. Right, because one doesn't immunize you against the other. Exactly, yes. Exactly, yeah. So where, what's the latest, Dr. Fron? What's, what's on the table for research that's happening right now? What's your next publication? You've got what, about 12 million publications <laughs> now. It's amazing. Well, um, the latest is that the uh, you know, studies of genetics of ADHD have taken off in the last decade. Uh, this year, our big international group hopes to publish, uh, will publish the, the second phase of our work, which now documents very clearly 20, 27 risk, what we call risk variants for ADHD that are very, very well documented. But in addition to that, it continues to document a very strong, we call polygenic background 
meaning that there are many, many, many genetic risk variants for the disorder. We believe based on the data up to 7,000, wow. each, each of which you know, increases our risk a tiny little bit. And that's frustrating because if we had one single gene or five genes that were involved in ADHD, it might be easy to figure out what medication could we use to solve the disorder. But because there are so many, it makes that hunt for treatments much more difficult. But again, I think that's an important breakthrough. Another important area has to do with what we call precision medicine, trying to uh, better target treatments for patients based upon their clinical picture. As you know, it's very hard to do right now. We you know, we have a bunch of medications for ADHD, but knowing which one to give first is, is kind of guesswork. You, some doctors start with methylphenidate, some with amphetamine, some like non-stimulants. Um, so some of us, including my team, are trying to develop predictive models that can predict not only things like medication outcomes, who, who should be on which medication, we're also trying to predict which kids are at risk for other conditions. So we've shown, for example, in some data from Sweden that we can do a pretty good job predicting which kids are at risk for subsequent episodes of suicidality. And that's important for knowing, telling doctors who should they monitor more closely or not. So I think those are two big areas, genetics, but also predictive modeling in terms of the work that I've, I'm doing right now. I should also mention a third area, which has to do more with um, moving the clinical world forward is that uh, the American Professional Association for ADHD-Related Disorders is now moving forward to develop uh, U.S. guidelines for the diagnosis and treatment of ADHD. Uh, we currently have no guidelines in the United States for this disorder, which is really kind of crazy. That's um, mind-blowing to me that we don't have that. I mean, given that we've been looking at this for decades. It, re it really is. So we're finally moving forward on that, and we hope to have guidelines in place uh, sometime next year. Well, this has been amazing discussion. So, you know, we base a lot on the I am approach, the idea that everyone's doing the best they can. This is my current maximum potential, influenced by the four domains of your home domain, the social domain, the biological domain, and the I see. How do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? It's basically theory of mind. Because the four domains interact, a small change in any domain can have a big effect. We've been talking about that. We add a medication. All we're doing is making a small change in the biological domain, and that can have an effect on the other three domains, especially one's self-esteem, what's happening at home and at school. So given that, what we're talking about, what small change, Dr. Frank, can you recommend to our listeners, given our topic today? Well, you know, Joe, what you call the IC domain is really important, kind of this introspection domain, thinking about yourself and how you operate in the world. I would recommend that people do a, a better job at looking internally about what changes might I be able to make to improve myself in the world. A simple way to do it is to say, I like to think of, of life as a, an endless continuation, a continuation of having to make decisions. Do I do A or do I do B? And I tell people, ask yourself, is this going to, is this action you're going to take, is this going to, is this going to make you better? Is it going to make someone else better? Or is it going to make you worse or make someone else worse? It's going to raise you up, bring you down. Really three choices. It's going to pull you up, it's going to drag you down, or it's not going to have any change at all. Figure that out and try to raise yourself up or try to raise other people up in your life. Um, figure out what kind of person have you been. And if you've been the kind of person that is constantly bringing things down, try to make a change in, in that area. It's great, great, great small change people can make. And it leads actually into the second truth of the I am, because everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them which has an effect on their biological domain, because you know it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. And you're part of someone's home or social domain. This means you control no one, but you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Stephen Perron, what kind of influence do you want to be? Well, my, my goal in life has been to influence people by creating knowledge that's based on solid evidence. And I honestly have been 
that's the word for it, somewhat disillusioned in recent years because of the emergence of fake news and fake information all over the internet. So that essentially, you know, a 25 year old who's attractive and funny can have more influence on TikTok in a five minute TikTok than I can have with 30 years of, of my work. And yet I still keep the nose to the grindstone and say, I'm gonna still do this. I'm gonna still provide this information because at some point people will find me. You know, They'll find adhdevidence.org and they'll get the right information. Maybe a little bit later than they should have found it, but, th but they will find it. And so I essentially hope to influence people via knowledge, information, and finding a way people to understand that we all have our personal epistemology. And by, what I mean by that is how we know that things are true. Mm. And I would urge people, if, you, if your personal epistemology, you think th things are true because you like the person who is saying what they're saying, you need to re-examine that. You need to figure out what is the basis for knowing truth in the world. And it's not because somebody's funny. It's not because they're engaging. Um, I would say it's because they are basing what they're telling you on a strong foundation of information, evidence, and knowledge. Who's paying but, you to say that? <laughs> Thanks, Tom. I don't know. Dr. Joe's not paying me anything for this interview, so no, no, I'm not being paid to say it. That's right. We are. This is all volunteer work. Tom. <laughs> it's so true. And, you know, I appreciate that influence because um, there is a lot of interesting information in the world. How you decide what you want to choose by which to live your life is such an important thing. So please uh, pay attention. All right, folks, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Dr. Fron, thank you so much for being here today. Thank, thank you, Dr. Joe. It's been a very stimulating, intelligent, and informative conversation. Wonderful.